Well, it's almost Christmas time. And what does Christmas time mean? Kids, can you help me? Christmas is about getting what? Nobody wants to jump in. Getting presents. Of course it is. That's what Christmas is all about. Now, when you get older, you're taught to say something a little more adult, like that the true spirit of Christmas is the spirit of giving. But, but I think Lucy actually speaks the more unvarnished truth in this comic strip. The true meaning of Christmas. To me, Christmas is the joy of getting. Uh, you mean giving. Christmas is the joy of giving. I don't have the slightest idea what you're talking about. Anybody like Lucy today? You know, we, we got to just face it, don't we? We love to get stuff. And that's one of the reasons we love Christmas. But let me ask you this. Do you remember what you got last year for Christmas? Or the year before that? I think the greatest Christmas present I ever got was a pellet gun that my dad gave to me when I was nine or ten, and it was so big he couldn't wrap it, so he, he put a bow around it and hid it behind the, the door, and I just, I still remember the joy of pulling that door open and seeing the gun and knowing it was mine. I babied that thing, I oiled it, I, I spent hours shooting at trees and tin cans, but you know what, I couldn't tell you today where that pellet gun is. It's probably rusting in some dump somewhere. You see, Christmas fades, and gifts lose their luster. And in the end, the Grinch really does steal our Christmases. But what if somebody could give you a gift that lasted forever? A gift that kept on giving and never wore out, ran out, or was thrown out? That would be amazing, wouldn't it? And wouldn't you love the person that could give you that kind of a gift? Well, that's actually what we're going to unwrap this morning in Psalm 103. And if you haven't yet, take your Bibles and turn there to them, to Psalm 103. It's a special psalm that tells us about the gifts God gives us that never grow old. This was Spurgeon's favorite psalm. In fact, this is what he wrote about it. As in the lofty Alps, some peaks rise above all others. So among even the inspired psalms, there are heights of song which overtop the rest. This 103rd psalm has ever seemed to us to be the highest in the divine chain of mountains of praise, glowing with a ruddier light than all of the rest. There is too much in the psalm for a thousand pens to write, and we're going to try to do it in 35 minutes. It is one of those all-comprehending scriptures which is a Bible in itself and it might alone almost suffice for the hymn book of the church. Wow. Ready to jump into this treasure? If you noticed in verse 1, David begins this psalm differently from many others. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Who is he talking to? Unlike in many psalms, he's not addressing God. He's speaking to himself. And we almost get the feeling that the pump of praise in David's heart has been hardened and it's stuck. And he needs something to, to prime the pump, to, to get him ready to worship God with all of his heart and soul. But he's not there yet. Maybe he was glum or tired or depressed. And he needs to rouse himself. He wants to shake off his apathy and his gloom so that he can praise God with all of his being. And maybe some of you have come to church that way this morning. You look around at everybody in their Christmas best and with their Christmas smiles on and you paste one on yourself, but you know deep down in your heart that you're just not there. In fact, 
I, I was there last week as Mark began this series on grateful by teaching us the goal of gratefulness from Colossians chapter 1. And I was thinking, next Sunday I have to get up in front of all these people and preach a sermon on blessing God with all that is within me. And because of some things going on in our lives, I, I wasn't sure I could do that. And, and God has touched me in a way this week, enabling me to do that, because if you're like me and not able to do that today, what we want to do this morning is just look at the life of David. We want to do what he did. And you know what he did? He remembered the gifts of the Lord and his goodness. We take heart at what David did, and in Psalm 103, we're going to find three catalysts for preparing our hearts to praise God. Three things that will serve as an impetus or a stimulus to get ourselves out of our problems and into God and the way that he is thinking about the world. So if you've come to church today not up, not able to sing, you've come to the right place. Just let God's word wash over you this morning. Verse 1 is really an introduction to the whole psalm. There's three quick things we need to Take a look at in verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. What does it mean to bless the Lord? That's not the usual Hebrew word for praise or thanks. It's literally the word that means to give. And it's used of when God blesses us, he gives us things. And so how can we bless God who needs nothing? You thought about that before? Well. God blesses us by giving us what we need, and to bless Him in exchange means, I think, to acknowledge that He is the source of all of those blessings and to call His name blessed for what He's given to us. So blessing God is kind of a combination of praise and thanksgiving. It's adoring God because of the gifts that in His goodness He has given to us. Secondly, all that is within me. This is a word in Hebrew that junior high boys would like. It literally means guts, innards, all my inward parts. And this is what can be challenging for us because the psalmist is saying, I'm not going to praise God just with part of my life. Every single part of me from the sole of my foot to the top of my head needs to pour itself out in praise to God. You see, true Christian worship, my friends, is not just a matter of routine or of saying certain words like some religions. God doesn't care about the words. God wants our spirit. He wants our hearts. He wants us to bless him with all that is within us. And then it says to bless his holy name. It's a word that certainly describes God's purity, that he has never sinned, that he can have no contact with sin. But it's a word that means more than that. It, it means literally to be separate, to be apart, to be different. And so as he begins the psalm, he's telling us that we are now going to see a God who is unlike anything else you've ever seen before. There is no system, there is no religion, there is no person in the whole world like this holy God. And that's why we can pour out all of our praise from all of our beings to him. The first catalyst for preparing our hearts to give praise to God is to remember his gifts, verses 1 to 6. Verse 2 says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. That's what we've been doing this week, if you've been following up from Mark's sermon last week. Remember, Mark said, when you see grace, give thanks. 
And he encouraged us morning and evening to take a sticky note and write five things on it, morning and five things evening. And at first, I didn't want to do that. And, and yet I did it because he's my pastor. He's also my boss. I thought this might be good for my soul as well as my job. And I did it. And you know what? The first day was kind of hard, but then it got easier and easier. And there's so many things that we can thank God for. And if you've had trouble with your list, keep working at it. And I'm going to give you seven things in our first section today that you can write down if you can't think of anything else. And the first thing is in verse 3, who forgives all your iniquity. He starts with our most fundamental need. And the word in Hebrew is plural, iniquities. We've all done many sins against God, and it is our sins that have separated us from God, and it is our sins that have brought death and destruction into our lives. You know, modern people sometimes think that evangelical Christians are too hung up about sin. Just stop it, they say, and get on with life. Well, the reason we're so concerned about sin is that the Bible has diagnosed sin to be the reason for every single thing wrong in the world. It's the cancer that is destroying mankind. And God is the only one that has a cure for sin. And that is why he can forgive all of our iniquities. What is the cure? Well, the cure really is the theme of the whole Bible. What God has done to restore sinful human beings into a relationship with a holy God. It began back in the garden when God promised a deliverer it continued through the Old Testament and the sacrificial system of blood sacrifices who would, would serve as a covering or as an atonement for our sins. And those pictures were all fulfilled in the Lamb of God when Jesus came and gave his own life on the cross, taking on himself the penalty that we deserved. That is all that is involved in him forgiving our iniquities. That is a great blessing. He forgives all of our sins through his Son. And notice he forgives all of our sins, not just some. And that's something to praise God for this morning. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Think of all that God has forgiven you even this week, this month, throughout the course of your lifetime. To think that God has taken that mess of rebellion and iniquity, and he has washed it clean in the blood of Jesus. How could we not bless his holy name? Secondly, he heals all your diseases, verse 3b. Oh, how we hate disease, don't we? Diseases have caused pain and suffering to us. Diseases have taken the lives of our loved ones from us. We see the effects of disease in our congregation this morning. It's something terrible. There is nothing like disease to make us understand how weak we are. In 1999, I came down with a disease that laid me flat on my bed for days at a time. And that happened on and off for several years, a disease called Meniere's disease. And it was one of the reasons that we had to come home from Pakistan. You see, diseases cripple us and they change the course of our lives. But God heals all of our diseases. How many times have you been sick in your life? And you're better, aren't you? God has healed you thousands of times. Otherwise, you wouldn't even be in church today. God heals 
our diseases. And so we bless his holy name. But if you're a stickler, you might say, well, how about that word all? Does he heal all of our diseases? Yeah, that's a great question. We need to remember that this psalm is poetic literature. It's not a scientific treatise. And as one commentator said, it is not laden with qualifications covering every possible ramification. I mean, the psalmist himself knew that everybody eventually dies, and most people die of a sickness in the end. So he knew that God in this life doesn't necessarily heal all of our diseases, but he heals many of them. And then ultimately, he is going to heal all of our diseases because when he comes in that new heaven and that new earth, what is going to be gone? There will be no more sickness. And this verse will be fulfilled in all of its fullness on that day. God heals all of our diseases if we will let him touch us by faith. The word likely refers not just to bodily diseases, but also to all kinds of inward and outward sufferings. Some of our sufferings may have been caused by our own bad decisions. We find ourselves in a mess of our own making, and God says, I understand that. I can fix that. I can heal that disease. Others may be suffering because of what someone else has done to you, and that's even harder. God heals them all will let him touch us. Even the ravages of abuse can be healed by Jehovah Rapha, the healer, the restorer. Third, he redeems your life from the pit, verse 4a. This phrase is commonly interpreted to mean the pit of death, and this is true. God does not abandon his people to the grave, Psalm 16, but he will redeem their lives out from it. He tells us in the New Testament that on the day Jesus comes back in glory, the dead in Christ will rise first. He will redeem everyone who's, everyone who's died in Christ. They will be raised to new life when Jesus comes back. And this really is the greatest gift that God could give us, that our bodies will not rot someplace for all of eternity, our souls will not suffer in hell for all of eternity, but God is going to redeem us and take us to himself forever and ever. What more could you want? And yet, how does he do that? This is a very important word. It doesn't just say he pulls us out of the pit. It says he redeems us out of the pit. It's a word that has a cost associated with it. There's a price to redemption, a price to buy back something that has gone away from you. And that's the price, as we mentioned, that Jesus paid on the cross for our sins. He redeems our life from the pit by his blood. But the word here for pit is actually not the usual Hebrew word for the grave. It's not the word sheol. It's a word that literally means a pit, a, a, a chasm in the ground that you might fall into and either be injured or perhaps even captured. And so you may be today in a pit of despair. You may be stuck in a hole that you just can't climb out of for whatever reason. You're in a pit. And one of God's benefits to you today is that he's telling you he can save your life out from that pit. He can do for you what he did to David when he said in Psalm 40, verse 2, he lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. God redeems our life from the pit. Bless his holy name. Fourth, he crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. Verse 4b, we're going to see more about steadfast love and mercy in the next section, but here the crowning word is interesting. What is a crown? We don't wear them these days, but a crown is a source of honor. 
It's an emblem. It's a, a designating or identifying factor. And when we have the crown of God on our heads, we're identified as sons and daughters of the King. This is who we are. And you see, mercy and love not only follow us all the days of our lives, as David said in Psalm 23, they also go before us into every situation that we face. We have the crown of God's mercy on our heads. Fifth, he satisfies us with good, verse 5a. The picture is one of bulging cheeks. And it means to be so full, so satisfied that you simply can't take another bite like you were about a week and a half ago at Thanksgiving. That's the word here. What he's saying is God takes good things. You, you just have to open your mouth wide and he will fill it. He will stuff so many good things in there that pretty soon you're going to have to say, Stop, God, I, I'm so full I can't handle any more. He satisfies us with good things. If you haven't understood that yet, just Go to Togo. Take a vision trip. See how the rest of the world lives, and you will come back with a fresh appreciation for the blessings that God has poured on your life. But it's not just being full. It's being full of the right things, of good things. For instance, if you ate a half a cherry pie right now with a half a gallon of ice cream, would you be full? Yeah, you would be full, but would you be satisfied? No, you would be sick because <laughs> you're having too much of the wrong thing. And, and the phrase here means that God does not fill us with junk food. In fact, that's sometimes why he doesn't give us what we ask for is because we can't discern the difference. But God fills us with good things, with things that he know are ultimately going to satisfy us and fill us with just, we've got all that we need, God. Thank you. Bless your name and all that is within me. Spurgeon said, many a worldling, by that he meant a non-Christian, many a worldling is satiated, but not one is satisfied. See, there is no satisfaction in anything else than what the gifts of God give us through his son, Jesus Christ. Fifth, or sixth, he renews our youth, verse 5b, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. You know, walking through the valleys and climbing the mountains of life can wear us out. In fact, sometimes just the routine of taking care of kids day after day can drain all of our energy. And what God says is that in that time, you simply, in Isaiah 40, 31, need to come back and, and come to the Lord in your weakness and to wait on Him. And then what does He do? He will renew your strength like the eagle. He will infuse His life into your very pores. He will share His energy with you as you spend time with Him so that you can soar and mount up with wings like eagles and fly forever in his strength and in his grace. Do you need that this morning? That is a benefit that God gives. He renews our youth like the eagles. Seventh, verse six, he works justice and righteousness for all who are oppressed. Now most of us in this room I don't think have personal experience with injustice. Some of us do. And you need to remember that God has seen it all, God knows it all, and God takes it in hand. God is going to make all wrongs right. The day will come, he says, when vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The evil one will get his just deserts, and the one who has suffered will be comforted because God works justice and righteousness for all who are oppressed. 
So these are all gifts of God provided by his bounty. What an amazing, as someone said, benefit package we have as followers of Jesus Christ. But all of these gifts point back ultimately to the giver. And so now we wanna go a bit deeper than Lucy. And we wanna look in the second section at the character of the giver. So first, remember his gift. Secondly, reflect on his character, verses seven to 18. The psalm takes a bit of a shift in verse seven. Did you notice that? He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. It's a look all the way back to Egypt and then to Mount Sinai. And this is an important shift, maybe more important than you realize. Because the Bible and Christianity is not just a philosophy. It's not just ideas made up in people's minds about the world that they think should be. It is a reality that is rooted in verifiable history. It's not just somebody speaking words. Anybody can say anything, but it doesn't mean anything until you've acted on it and seen it in practice. And that's what David is saying here. So let's go back to Exodus chapter 34 and just look quickly at what happened there. On Mount Sinai, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And then in the next chapters, the story goes on. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now get this, God in one verse is going to describe himself to Moses. And he does it in the same words that are used in Psalm 103. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God said, you can't see me, Moses, but you can know me. Here's who I am. And now for the next 40 years and beyond, God continued to prove himself by his actions to his people that he was gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. So we learn in verse eight, four things about God. And it's interesting, these things are then expanded on in the rest of this section. So the first character of God, characteristic of God we see is in verse eight at the beginning, the Lord is merciful. Mercy is not giving someone what they do deserve. And if the wages of sin are death, then did you think, why is anybody even in the auditorium this morning? I mean, literally, not one of us should be here. Because each one of us has gone our own way and we have spurned God's law. He could have very rightly struck us down the minute we did that, like he did Ananias and Sapphira, and killed us. But because he is merciful, we are alive today. How does he treat us? Verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. He doesn't treat us as we deserve because he is a merciful God. And so we should bless the Lord for what he has not done to us, as well as for what he has done for us. Why is he merciful? Two reasons are given in the text. One is in verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. What a beautiful and precious picture that's understandable by any parent in the room. Why does God have mercy on us? Because he's a loving father and he knows we're children. If you have a one-year-old who keeps spilling her Cheerios off of her plate, do you yell and scream at her? Someone's laughing, you've got that in your home. 
you, you don't yell and scream at them. Now maybe if they deliberately start dumping Cheerios, then it's time to say something. But you know that their little fingers just can't pick those things up and get them all the way in the mouth. Or maybe your four-year-old can't drag the big bag of leaves from the backyard and put it on the curb and you don't yell at him for not being able to do that. You, you understand what it's like to be small and incapable and weak and, and God, as our Father, understands that we're just children. We can't do much of this stuff and he has mercy on us. But how else does he have mercy? Verse 14, for he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Really? Is that all we are? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> That's all we are. That's what God made us from before he breathed his life into us and made us living souls. And that's what we turn back into when he takes the breath of life out of us. That's all we are is, now it's magnificent dust, but it's dust nonetheless. And God knows that because he's the one that built us. He knows that we're weak. He knows what the inner ear is like. There's a, a mechanism the size of a dime that has three semicircular canals in it that control all of your balance system. And I didn't know much about that until mine went bad in 1999 and suddenly I realized that I'm not only wonderfully made, I'm fearfully made. One little part of my body can go wrong and I can't even get out of bed or think straight for weeks at a time. God understands. But you know what's even better than him understanding us because he's our father and because he's our creator? Him understanding our frame because he himself one time came out of heaven and lived in one of these dusty bodies for 33 years. And that's of course what we celebrate at Christmas, the incarnation. Now of course God knew in his mind what it was like to be human, but now he came in his person and he lived inside one of these bodies. And that's why he's called a faithful and merciful high priest because he's been tempted in every way like we are. He understands us and our weakness and that's why he's so merciful to us. How merciful is he? Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Did you know you can get to the North Pole and you can get to the South Pole but you can never get to the East Pole or the West Pole? Isn't that interesting? How far has he removed our sins from us? So far that they've just spun and they've completely disappeared. You can't get there from here. They're buried, they're gone forever because of the mercy of God. Bless his holy name. Secondly, he is gracious, verse eight. Mercy pardons sin and grace bestows favor. Grace is giving us what we don't deserve. Grace is the things we saw at the first section and, and the 10,000 reasons we sang about earlier today. This is all God's grace, his bounty being poured out into our lives. Third in verse eight, he is slow to anger. This is an interesting idiom in Hebrew that I especially like. It means that God has long nostrils. Literally, that's the word in Hebrew. And so uh, I'm more like God than many of you here this morning. <laughs> Now, I, I gotta confess, I don't totally get this idiom, but apparently when you get angry, your nostrils kind of flare, and so if you have long nostrils, it means it takes a lot longer to get angry. Now, that made a lot of sense to Hebrews back in those days, but so that's what's going on. What he's saying is that God doesn't fly off the handle. It takes a lot to get God angry. He is slow to anger. And then it says, verse nine, he will not always chide. 
He will not always rebuke us. He will not continue to bring up the past. He won't keep taking us to court, which he could do if he wanted, because we continue to add to the list of things that he could take us to court for, but he doesn't do that. That's because he's slow to anger, and he doesn't keep it forever. He lets go of his anger in his love for his children. God's anger, though real and terrifying were you to experience it, is often delayed, it's temporary, and it's sparing. And that's why we bless God with all that is within us. Fourth, he is abounding in steadfast love. This is that beautiful Hebrew word chesed that is hard to translate by one English word. It means giving favor, giving good gifts to people, being positively disposed to them, but out of a commitment of love. And what he's saying is that God has committed himself to his people and he is always going to be pouring out his goodness upon them. He is abounding with this love. He is plenteous in it. He is not stingy. He doesn't hold back. He pours it out upon us. How much so? Verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. How high are the heavens above the earth? The psalmist had no idea. We have more of an idea now. The moon is 240,000 miles from the earth and we've sent people there. That's as far as human beings have gone. But we've actually sent a space probe much farther than that. Voyager 1 has been in journey for 42 years now along with Voyager 2. And it gives us a picture of the size of the universe because Voyager 1 is traveling at about 36,000 miles an hour. It has now exited our solar system and it is in interstellar space. It's kind of ridiculous to do this, but we're trying to show the heights of heaven on a, on a two-dimensional screen. But here's the journey of Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. This is sort of what it looks like as they fly through space. And then here's some facts about it, 34,000 miles an hour. But here's what I want you to, to get this morning, if you can. It's going to take Voyager 1 to reach the next nearest star to us. Okay, you following me? It's, it's exited the solar system. To get to the next nearest star at 34,000 miles an hour, it's going to take 75,000 years for it to get there. And there are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on the seashores of our world. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. How long can this extravagant love go on? Surely at some point it would run dry. No, no, verse 17, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting to those who fear him. The only condition is that we fear him and walk in his commandments, and then we will experience his love forever. But there's a third catalyst for praise this morning. We remember his gifts. We reflect on his character. But thirdly and finally, we rest in his sovereignty. Verses 19 to 22, there's still a question that may remain in your mind and it's answered in this psalm, but the question actually isn't even raised in the psalm. And here's what I mean. You may be sitting there thinking, sure, God is good, he's given me many good things. I have a lot to be thankful for, but there's something in my life that has just crushed me. And, and I cannot give thanks with my whole heart because of that thing. 
And frankly, that's where my wife and I find ourselves today. As I mentioned earlier, last week I, I didn't know if I could get up and preach. There's a lot I can thank God for, but you know, the things that we want most in this life, the things that we would trade a thousand blessings for, God has not given them to us yet. And there's a whole leg of me or a heart of me that, that can't bless the Lord because of that. What do we do when, like Job, God takes everything from us? You know what Job did? He said, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How did he get there? And Habakkuk has the answer. He said, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Why can he say that? Because of the next verse, Habakkuk 3.19, the sovereign Lord is my strength. And the answer to this question for my soul and maybe for yours this morning is in verse 20 of Psalm 103. Verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. You see, God is in charge. He's not hurried. He's not worried. He's not threatened. He's not confused. God is driving all of history and every event in your life and mine to this single purpose that it would bring more glory to his name. And he's not done with that yet. And so even in the questions and the darkness and the pain, we can bless his name because he rules from heaven on his holy throne. And because of that universal reign, praise is due him from every portion of creation, verses 20 and 21. And then the psalm comes back full cycle to the psalmist himself. Bless the Lord all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. My friends, today with me, can you bless this gift giver, this sin forgiver, this disease healer, this pit rescuer, this love crowner, this heart satisfier, this youth renewer, this merciful, this gracious, this slow to anger, this abounding in loving kindness, this sometimes giving and sometimes withholding sovereign God with all that is within you. Bless his holy name. Can you do that by faith this morning with me? Let us pray. Father, we are so glad for the gifts you've given. We do bless your holy name. And now, by faith, we bless you for what you've not given because you know best and we trust you with the results. Lord, we thank you that we know for sure that you have loved us with an everlasting love because you sent your son to die for us. And as we think of his death now, we ask that you would warm our hearts so that from every part of our body and our beings, we could bless you for your goodness to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.